Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, November 18th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Big doings in the House of Representatives yesterday. Nancy Pelosi announcing that she will not seek... Uh, to continue running uh, Democrats in the House. Uh, She lost her speakership because Republicans have taken control of the House. She has been leader of the Democrats in the House for 19 years, began as a minority leader uh, in 2003, ascended to the majority, ascended to the speakership in 2000 after the 2006 elections, lost the speakership, which we'll talk about a little bit in twin after the 2010 elections, regained the speakership in 2018 uh, after the midterm elections there. And the speakership has now been lost to the Democrats. She is 82 years old uh, and has uh, and made a, um, uh, I would say, a rather pompous uh, speech, farewell speech, Um just want to say we read that uh, John Meacham, the um, news magazine editor who has now somehow become uh, Gibbon or um, Thomas McCauley or something like that, uh, who seems to have only one speed, which is to quote Lincoln. So it's like, as you know, let me think, as uh, Lincoln said, you know, he was a, he was in the House, but it was all, you know, uh, we saved democracy, blah, 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 blah. Uh so uh but it's a it's a very significant thing like literally she has been she has been the head of the democrat in the house for a generation like a generation is 20 years so it's 19 years um and uh i was does she have a legacy do people like this have a legacy i don't think she i mean i do think she has a legacy but like she has slave, a le- go ahead i'm sorry go just on. she has a legacy in the in the sense that every building around the Capitol has a name that's a legacy. She's a legacy like Longworth because she's a machine politician. Rayburn. Yeah. Rayburn. Right. I mean, like, does, yeah, does, these, yeah, does anybody know who any like, of these people hmm. are now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look them up, they have a profound legacy, but not one that springs to mind as particularly um, inspiring. Can I, well, I I think yeah. it's interesting that you said and her speech was very heavy on the on sanctimony about how she'd saved she and her party had saved democracy. That's, I think, the distinction. What what you're supposed to do, as, as Noah says, is a machine politician. And she was she she grew up as the daughter of another machine politician. It should be noted. So this is this is basically her her whole uh, her whole life. And she was very effective in many ways. But you're supposed to practice the art of democracy as a representative of the people, not not see yourself as some savior of of democracy. And I think towards the end of her time as speaker, the sanctimony, the sort of stunt performances, you know, sort of dramatically tearing up the speech that Trump had just given. Um, it, she was starting down a path that I think actually would undermine whatever legacy she might have uh, down the road. The very performative and sanctimonious savior of democracy, Pelosi, was my least favorite Pelosi. I'm fascinated how she used power when she was younger. As a woman, she had a very interesting career as well. She raised, what, five kids? before she got into politics. So she's kind of a fascinating 20th century figure um, as a woman in power, which I think her story tells, says a lot about our country. It's interesting. Uh, 
that is a that is a, a fascinating point and and I think worth um going over a little bit because uh she was 40 <clears throat> she was 47 years old when she was elected to Congress for the first time now she had been a democratic activist <clears throat> in San Francisco uh, married to a wealthy man uh daughter of a the former mayor of Baltimore and a and a leading figure in the House of Representatives himself um so it's not like she was new to politics or you know she was a fundraiser and a, in California and chairman of the yeah maybe chairman of the California Democratic Party and head of the host committee when the D Democrats held their uh convention in San Francisco in 1984 so she had a lot of chits and she had a lot of connections um but uh 47 and my my late my mother who died this year uh would often say to younger women <clears throat> who would look at her and say you know i just i you know i i have so much to, i want to you know i haven't written a book yet i haven't done this and i haven't done that and my mother would say you know you can have it all but you can't have it all at once and uh one of my sisters who would say she felt so not as accomplished as my mother because my mother raised four kids and and then and had jobs and and published books and my mother would say you know i was 43 when i published my first book like you look at you look at everything flat and say if you're not if you're not like on all tracks all at the same time um you know that's actually not a good way to do it that means you're not a good writer you're not a good mother you know you're not a good partner like you need to slow down be patient and all of that and i think nancy pelosi is an object lesson in this and uh, it would it would actually have been interesting if she had ventilated a little bit on that if she was making a personal testimonial because that actually her example could be very good advice for a lot of people who if she'd been a conservative i think she could have and would have but you cannot give that kind of advice to women on the left anymore that's that's you, you can't say what what her life actually represented which I, I totally agree with you you can have it all but not at the same time is is very good advice to young women um but she can't really say that her side will not accept that any longer well so. i mean it depends on who you ask whether nancy pelosi was a conservative uh, we've been talking a lot about how the obsequious hagiographical um, <clears throat> remembrances of her really kind of stretch the extent to which she has this legacy, right? The progressive left has the knives out. The progressive left, I had no idea the extent to which they despise Nancy Pelosi. And they really hate Hakeem Jeffries, her successor. Perry Bacon at the Washington Post has a full bore assault on Nancy Pelosi's legacy. And the extent to which she empowered Republicans. She only ran as we're not as bad as Republicans, not bold progressives. Her centrism, which he indicts, was insufficient to maintain control of the House for much of her tenure. She was hyper cautious, which is related, but distinct from her centrism. And the fact that, you know, being the Speaker of the House led her not to focus on state level politics led Republicans to gerrymander the whole country to the degree that they have taken over. It is a, a stunning rebuke from a progressive voice 
suggesting that she just gave the house away to the GOP. And that's that, how I remember it. And that is insane because insane. in fact, the story is exactly the opposite. I have a column in the New York Post today about Pelosi's, it's not a retirement. I don't know what you call it because she's still in the house. A passing um, of the scepter right. to Hakeem right. like Jeffries. She's, like she's okay. going to be sitting so in, in markups look, and committee hearings. Let's look at her legacy. She becomes Speaker of the House in 2007 or, you know, as as the House uh, comes into the, the new House comes in in 2007. Uh, Democrats retain the House in 2008 in the landslide election of Obama. In 2009 and 2010, she whipped Republican uh, Democrats in the House into shape to pass Barack Obama's four colossal spending and social change bills. Dodd-Frank, uh, the, uh, the stimulus package, um, the second round, you know, the second round of TARP and TALF, and of course, Obamacare, of which she famously said, we have to pass the bill to see what's in it. For carrying water for Obama, put, taking her caucus and pushing it to the left to do what Obama wanted in this status direction, they lost 63 seats in the House in November of 2010 as a direct consequence of her forcing, I don't know how she forced, but you know, the atmosphere and her skill. She did force speaker. them. They knew they were walking into a buzzsaw and she convinced them to do it. Right. So in that sense, she lost her speakership because she was too progressive, which is why Perry Bacon Jr., who is a brilliant electoral analyst, and has now become a political columnist, should really go back to what he's good at because these columns are blitheringly stupid. And now let's move forward to now. What has she done in her speakership since 2018? Well, of course, Biden becomes president in 2020. Uh, arguably, the impeachment of Donald Trump, it's hard to say whether it was helpful or hurtful. She didn't want to impeach Trump. The caucus made her impeach Trump. She basically said that. I mean, I think she thinks Trump was evil and should have been gotten out of office, but she thought that it was politically. She had better political instincts on that, right. actually, than her own caucus. But yes. she had to give into her caucus to do that. That may have given him a lease on life. It's hard to know whether we, we don't really know what the net effect of that was. But to rally Republicans to Trump's side. We've seen what happens now when re Republicans did not rally to Trump's side in 2022, let's say. But she becomes, Biden becomes president. The Georgia runoffs give him the Senate. And what does she do with her last two years as speaker? $5 trillion in new spending. And here is where her skill came in because she had a majority of five right? 222 House members. Um, and she kept them in line and they passed this legislation one after the other after the other. And then they lost the House again. Now, did they lose the House again because of the spending? We'll never know. Did, would they, you know, if, 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 did they lose much less painfully than they could have? Absolutely. But I don't think you can, I doubt that you could actually claim, I don't, no one seems to be claiming 
that the losses were mitigated by the wonderful legislative accomplishments of Biden, despite the fact that people like to say that uh, in you know mainstream fora. So what what I was thinking when you first started asking if she has a legacy um, is that her legacy will be shaped by what comes next, I think. Um, and so, yeah, progressives have they have the knives out for her. Um, but I think depending both on what Democrats can get accomplished and on how far left they go, um, her legacy will will be cast against them and 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 their actions and it's not going to be shaped by um you know progressive critics it's going to be shaped by the 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 public who looks back and says well she 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 could get things done or um uh at least she wasn't as crazy as x um whoever x may be at the time well, I she's cultivated she's cultivated hakeem jeffries who who seems to have the votes to to take her Play, well as as minority leader now um and he's his his style is even more low-key that i mean pelosi i would not call low-key he's pretty low-key he's more moderate i think the 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 squad and all the progressives in the democratic party will dislike him as intensely as they dislike nancy pelosi but if he's able to kind of work with them all and and i guess Clyburn says he's going to stay somehow in leadership too but they're getting rid of the octogenarians they're pushing out their That's octogenarians, three octogenarians yeah. right? and they're putting Pelosi in some is gen 82. right Steny uh, hoyer, Steny hoyer majority 82 or 83 leader. yeah 83 and Clyburn's 82 Clyburn the whip is 82 yeah. right yeah. so so they're so, gone or yeah. or or sidelined and you've got yeah folks in their 50s now taking charge something right. that you know is is very healthy regardless of whether you have a d or an r after your name it's Steny Hoyers, and again this is to nancy pelosi's skill because Steny hoyer does not want to go he's telling everybody no one's he's terms. definitely getting the iceberg and pushed out <laughs> by pelosi which is hilarious he's not happy about this <laughs> yeah um but that that was uh that was the plan and it sends a pretty strong signal to the white house and too but that's not something that you can just you know convince somebody to do absent a whip hand I mean, I think the other you have to look at the this talk about Pelosi is very reminiscent of the talk among Republicans. Oddly enough, after they had won, uh, well, actually they hadn't won control of the Senate. Excuse me. So this is a a, a better analogy. So after 2010, um, conservative uh, clowns uh, got all head up about Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has to go. Mitch McConnell is a sellout. Mitch McConnell doesn't hold the line. Mitch McConnell doesn't fight. I mean, like, like you go back to 2011 and it was like, what are you focusing on Mitch McConnell for? The guy is the guy is low key. He's very skilled. You know, he is a legislator and a manager. He does, as I said, the other, you know, yesterday, like these guys like, are masters of things that nobody else wants to do. You know, he's like a janitor, practically. He said his job was like herding cats. It's a thankless job. Um, and, you know, and 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 they were, you know, from a conservative perspective, McConnell has been the most effective uh, legislator practically in American history. I mean, his willingness to 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 suffer the barbs of everybody when he played his game with Merrick Garland's nomination to hold and just see whether or not a Republican could get in so that the, so that that nomination could go to the, you know, to a conservative. 
I mean, almost nobody would have withstood the kind of ugly, you know, personal assault. Some people might say that it's really merited that what he did there was, un, you know, was unprecedented. But, you know, five years earlier, if a lot of these people had had their way, somebody else would have been Senate Majority Leader who would not have had the, I don't know what you would call it, the slow heartbeat necessary to sit there and take those slings and arrows and not and not relent and give Garland a vote. We should we should also point though uh our friend Andy Ferguson has a great piece in the Free Beacon about his favorite Pelosi moments. Um she could also just be a complete political hack when necessary. So when trying to pass bills and everyone's asking, you know, well what is it what will this do? She's like, well we have you have to pass the bill to know what's in it. Like you first, first just vote on it and then you can read it later like telling this to her caucus. And you know, she she is in she's an extreme sort of an extreme parody of herself as an elite. You know, she loved her favorite insult was to call someone insignificant. You know, she posted with no self-awareness whatsoever, her eating, you know, $25 a pint ice cream in front of a, you know, $25,000 refrigerator during lockdown pandemic when people had lost their jobs and were suffering. So she has a certain kind of elite democratic tin ear, sort of champagne liberal uh, tin ear. And and uh, his his piece is actually quite funny in, in mocking that. But at, I mean, I still go back to her skill, particularly um, the way she she actually could invoke her her status as a mother when necessary to kind of heard that she, she did sometimes treat her caucus like unruly children, which is not inappropriate given their behavior. And, and it was effective in a lot of ways, in a way that I think um, her being a woman actually mattered in that role, which which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, so in legacy terms, she has more of a legacy in some ways because of what I described here, which is that she she um put the needs of the national party and the presidents that she was speaker under over the needs of her of of her caucus now you could say that that was because she's you know was really that's her legacy is an ideological legacy that pushed uh democratic and you know progressive legislation through uh notwithstanding Perry Bacon Jr's claim that she wasn't progressive enough which you know, is not only an injustice, but uh, but it's just a misreading of uh, of history. Um, but you know that that was itself was a betrayal of the very nature of the House of Representatives itself. The House exists as a as the representative of local interests at the federal level, right? That's why we have four hundred and thirty five House districts. The House members are supposed to come and say. My neighborhood, you know, my area in, you know, uh, in Chicago needs X and you're from Oklahoma and you want like money for cows and I don't, I need money for whatever I need money for. And they're supposed to do combat with each other or go into coalition with each other where each of them gets a kind of a taste. It is not supposed to be a national voice. Um, and uh, for this, I think we can thank in large, I mean, we can thank technological changes that have made, uh, you know, all kinds of things like the fact that regionalism itself is declining in the United States. These, you know, states and 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 areas and regions are much less heterogeneous than they used to be, much more like each other. America is much more like itself in a kind of monocultural sense than it used to be. And on the other hand, like it's also that you could nationalize political issues because of technology, because of the rise of 
uh, of new technologies that broke down the gatekeepers and uh, and and all of that. And so Newt Gingrich, that was Newt Gingrich's gift, essentially, to the Republic. It was to nationalize the 1994 election, to make it the Republicans against Clinton, to say, we're going to do this if we get into power, the contract with America, nationalize things, gave gave members a rubric to run on that wasn't just, I'll do better for our district than this guy will. It's, I'll do better for our district. I'm going to do better for our country. And here are the 10 things. I'm going to make sure you get tax cuts and I'm going to make sure that we have less regulation and stuff that House members didn't really talk about before. And now we have a how you know the how you know much better if you are you know um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's constituent. You know much better how she feels about global climate change than how she feels about the potholes on Queens Boulevard or capitalism or you know yeah, or, yeah, any or, of or and she is allowed to go around blocking jobs for people in her district from Amazon so she can make a larger point about capitalism. Like that would never have happened before. So that so there was a transformation of the house, and she was the master of that transformation. And we can see that because her speakership twice has now helped cause her party to go into the minority. So it's an interesting legacy because on the one hand, yeah, I mean, she Obamacare, I Obamacare would have passed without her. Let's face it. Like the one way or another it would have. But you know, in fact, the issue with Obamacare was Senate Republicans or Olympia Snow, former senator from Maine, who kind of played footsie in a weird way. But I mean, that would have passed. And a lot, you know, a lot of what Obama wanted would have passed regardless. He had a huge majority and he had a real mandate and all of that. Biden's a different story. Like a less skilled speaker would not have been able to get these things through or a speaker who didn't understand this change in atmosphere. And so, you know, that's her legacy, you know. Thanks very much. You know, we now have a thirty-one trillion dollar um, federal debt, uh, and she's, you know, she's partially responsible for that. So she should really, you know, put her head on her pillow, think about her fourteen or fifteen grandchildren, and think about what she's left, the mess that she's left for them and our children, and all that to clean up because. That's what she did. That's what Obama did. That's what she did. That's what Biden is doing right now. And, uh, you know, so congr- I, congratulations to Nancy Pelosi for her legacy. Um, it'll be interesting to know if they build another, you know, if they build a building on, on Capitol Hill, will they name it after her? Obviously, they'll only name it after her. I'll rename one of them. They never do that. Like, you only do that. You only rename buildings when people give you, you know, when you're David Geffen and you give Lincoln Center $500 million and then you just take Avery Fisher's name I don't off. know. I don't know. These you, are you all dead bridges. white males. Yeah, yeah dead white oh, males. We're gonna, Interesting we're gonna point. And, and maybe, and maybe they were segregationists. Someone's going to dig up some dirt on Cannon. one of these guys yeah. and uh, he's toast. Exactly. Okay. So uh, let's take a break here and hear from our one of our sponsors. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.fire.org. Republicans 
were also active yesterday on Capitol Hill, weren't they? Uh, Representative James Comer, a man I've never heard of before. So much so that when he was speaking, I was like, who is that guy? And I had to do like a Google, Google image search to find out because I didn't know who he was. Announced he's apparently head of House Oversight, which is a committee that will also feature Marjorie Taylor Greene. So that's going to be fun. That's going to be a fun committee. Uh, basically announced an invest House investigation into Joe Biden and the Biden family and said, we have done an investigation and we have proved that Joe Biden is a crook and we're now going to go into, so not that they're, not that they're pre they're, pres, you know, they're, they're, they're already announcing what the conclusion of whatever their hearings are. We're going to be, cause you know, that's, that's really, they basically said, we're, we have now d decided that Joe Biden is a criminal and we're now going to have hearings and they're going to say Joe Biden is a criminal. So why do they even have to have hearings? Anyway. Um, Did they so say the that? I, I thought they, yeah, go ahead. I thought they said the question. The, there's The question isn't, is Hunter Biden a bad guy? He is. But the question is, to what extent is, is Joe Biden involved? Right. And yeah. and it's it's but a shame. They but said he was involved. They, but his, they, they his, didn't the, just say what the question yeah, was. Exactly. They answered yeah. the question. And the oversight. <laughs> it, this should not be. I mean, there, this kind of overshadowed what what other uh, committees are intending to do in the next Congress, like uh, Mike McCall of Texas, who's on what is it foreign. I think he's foreign affairs. It's foreign yeah. foreign affairs. Now they're actually they also have some investigations they intend to do, namely into whether our government is. Um, allowing the licensing of very critical technology to China without enough oversight and without enough concern about whether we're basically selling them extremely sensitive stuff that they can turn into weapons to use against us. They they also are interested in, in the Hunter Biden uh, connections, but in the context of whether or not it in it, it compromised national security and enriched Joe Biden when he was vice president. I mean, there are some paths of investigation that could be done without the insanity that's clearly on, on the table. I, for the I don't know Marjorie if Taylor this Green. isn't really smart. Why wouldn't it be really sharp to put people like Marjorie Taylor Greene on the investigate Hunter Biden, Joe Biden committee and keep him busy? Well, there's there will be a it's like a toddler with a craft toy or something. There will be a conspiracy <laughs> of interests on the part of the, the right wing media ecosystem and the left to make this the most important thing the House is doing. But it's objectively not. It's objectively a sideshow. And is it not smart to give them some shiny object to play with while the rest of the co conference does actual the actual work of governing? Well, no one made this decision. Like, this was a concession. I mean, this was a... And I, I think there are two ways of looking at this, one of which is that version, which is, look, it's going to happen anyway. Someone's going to do it. Uh, the other way to look at it is um, it's the first thing that the House Republican majority that is now going to control the House, the first thing they've announced they're going to do is have hearings to prove that Joe Biden is a crook. I mean, let's not. Which they I'm know not he say is, this they stupid. said. <laughs> okay. let's, let's stipulate. No. So here's my point. Is Joe Biden a crook? I don't know. I kind of doubt. I mean, you know, that this basically the, the conceit here is that the Bidens are kind of a kind of crime family selling influence, his brother, his son, and that he sits above it kind of floating above it and every now and then dips his pinky in to you know or you know sort of puts his pinky on the scale to help 
and gets his taste because he's the big guy and you get the big guy. Well, gets he does this, more than put his pinky. Them. He puts his son and his son's dodgy business associates on Air Force Two and flies them to countries with him where he is actually acting in, in a vice presidential role on behalf of our government. I, I It's a little more than just a pinky. I mean, I agree that he's sort of that's the, kind the of a pinky. Putting well, somebody well, on hold Air on, Force hold on. Two. I don't know. Pinky. Hold on. OK, I'm I'm torn on this because uh, we don't know if it's a pinky that that is the real question and that is an answer i wouldn't mind but you're saying out. it's now, an index could be or a thumb absolutely okay um and and it's a pinky <laughs> part 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 of um i just lost my thought thinking of thinking no, okay. biden's so fingers like, i was, tr- I was trying know, to think of an ice cream eating joke but forget not. forget that um okay there is already a justice department investigation of of hunter underway um, now, I think there are, are good reasons to wonder if that investigation will be as rigorous as it should be. Um, and so if if they were to talk in a serious way about ensuring that uh, and having serious people try to ensure that, then that's something I would be interested in. Um, but a, a full on clown show is is is. I think bad for a number of reasons. Even even I, I think Noah raises a, 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 an interesting point about keeping people like Marjorie Taylor Greene busy, but um, sh- it's not going to be good to keep her busy getting headlines over this, especially if and when it turns up absolutely nothing. And then where are they? Look, I, I think you make a, a great point about the Justice Department. We know that the Justice Department probe is serious. You know, we don't and and that and that, you know, Merrick Garland is being put in an unbelievably difficult position as somebody who would have to make some decision. Remember, I don't think that there is any question that one could look into Hunter Biden's behavior, including the effort to sell influence as the son of in 2015 or 2016, the sitting vice president um and not properly registering as a foreign agent all kinds of things like that like that's why it's all this connecting the dot to of this you know drug addict wastrel uh you know tragedy of a son to connecting the dot to his father who might simply have been so racked with anxiety, fear, and worry over his condition that he didn't mind having him on Air Force One so he could keep an eye on him. Or he was happy to hear that he had a new business opportunity because that meant that he wasn't, you know, going to end up, you know, dead in a crack den somewhere or something like that. Like you could every every at every point in the Hunter Biden story and Joe's, you know, behavior in the Hunter Biden story you can at least have a plausible argument for why or how Biden himself uh, was doing things to out of fear and worry for his son and not because he was looking to get enriched by his son and Tony Bobolinsky, who suddenly doesn't like them and now is dropping dirty dimes on them. But if you listen to that guy, you have absolutely no reason to believe that anything he is saying is true or that, or that Hunter told him that his father was involved because Hunter was conning him the way addicts con everybody. Um, But that said, I just think, you know, let's go back to the question of, is this what Republicans should be talking about as the first order of business? Don't they no, need to talk about stopping stupid. his legislative agenda and doing what they can to investigate 
say COVID spending or yeah, that oversight would be more well and I mean what again uh, that's oversight Afghanistan is... withdrawal like there's yeah. plenty of things that we can do a sort oh, of you're forgetting the second yeah. order or the of border what second order of business is all the is Zelensky's slush fund trying to get to the bottom of that we should be very clear about this whatever you want to see out of this house majority you will not I mean they want to feed Tucker Carlson's show and right. they want Tucker Carlson's show to feed them and they are playing for bigger stakes than this. Tucker's show has a three has has an audience of three million, not 155 million. 155 million is the number of people who will be voting in 2024 at a minimum. Okay? Like they're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. They are they are seeing something as big that is little, and they are missing what is big because they themselves are consumed by what is little it is not that joe biden being a crook or maybe finding out that he was a crook isn't important it would be important um and it's something you can do in a serious way as opposed to an unserious it's very hard to figure it out but i mean announcing that you already know that it happened and therefore you're going to have hearings because you you know because you read miranda divine's book and you know that there's meat on the bones of this cons biden family conspiracy is not a serious way to go about it serious way to go about it is to say we're going to look into it and then slowly like build up evidence but they don't want to do that because they're not serious people you know and they're not just not serious people i mean noah says they're clowns and they're more they're jerks like if you watch that press conference you know like I know we don't have an elevated politics, and I know it's, like, ridiculous to say people should be elevated. I mean, Adam Schiff isn't elevated. Democrats have behaved badly. I'm not here to defend any of this. But I'm saying it's the first order of business problem. Like, Kevin McCarthy could have stood up and said, you know what we're going to do in the House? We're going to do X, Y, and Z. Like, that's, that's we, you know, first order. What did, what did the... Granted, they can't do much of anything, right? So what did what did they do in 2020? They said, you know, we're going to pass voting rights, right? That was our first first order of business for Democrats in the last Congress or this Congress that's now about to end. But he's under their thumb. Like, he is not a good leader. This was the first example right out of the gate that this is not someone who's capable of handling political leadership in this particular political moment. I mean, yeah, you know, he basically has to make deals with people to get his leadership. They're already saying he doesn't have the votes to be to be speaker his rival Andy Biggs and all that. I don't even know what that means. What are they going to do? If he's not speaker, who's going to be speaker? It's Republicans in disarray after all yes, of our many months. Is. Of <laughs> it is Republicans are, yeah. in disarray. I mean, it's, you know, very, very simply Republicans in disarray. Um, you know, it's, you know, what could also be in disarray, but you can spare yourself from the dis disarray is uh, your HR problems. Cause when running a business, all kinds of weird things can happen. And, the way employees behave and problems that arise from conflicts between them and all of that. And you better talk to Bambi because this is a way to get your access to your dedicated HR manager, your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 a month, as opposed to like an $80,000 a year annual salary. That dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, and real-time chat. So onboarding and terminations run smoothly, team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. HR managers, 80 grand a year. Don't do it. Bambi starts at 99 per month. 
Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to bambee.com right now and type in commentary under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled bambee.com, bambee.com. Type in commentary magazine. Um, I don't even know what to talk about now because we've done the house. Uh, you know, as far as I can tell, the entire chattering class in the United States is uh, was you know believed that last night was sort of like the world was about to come to an end, and spent the entire night saying goodbye to each other on Twitter because they got it into their heads that Twitter was somehow going to disappear at midnight. It it was oh God hilarious. that would be you know a gift got... to civilization if it did. <laughs> it would be a gift to civilization. <laughs> right. And I was thinking about this, and I want to throw this to you guys and tell you so. Obviously, everybody got the dynamics of the 2022 midterms wrong, right? Everybody got them wrong. Like, I, you know, one person in America, Simon Rosenberg, got it right. And you could say that he got it right because he was just the the contrary voice saying, no, you're all wrong. And he, like, it was a smart investment. It was like he bet on the no, you're wrong line, and then he was right, and everybody else was wrong. But somebody was always going to do that. So I don't know how how much conviction there was behind it and not just cheerleading. But okay, so one person out of 50 million seemed to have got it right. And I was thinking about why, you know, with all the con- with all the data suggesting that Democrats were actually, you know, pushing back on the headwinds and all of that, why why it was so easy to discount it and I think Twitter has an enormous amount to do with that in the chattering classes. Like if you read Twitter and in the course of a day you read and you follow a lot of, you know, political professionals and political reporters and stuff like that. In the course of a day, you read 125 tweets that presume that Republicans are going to win in a wave. And you read three that suggest that they won't. The net effect over just a course of a couple of days is to is to unconsciously reinforce the sense that not only there's going to be a wave, but you would really be an idiot not to think there was a wave and you would be like ashamed to put yourself in front of people. It's sort of like when you're, when you're the sort of person who, um, you know, movie is like really popular and you didn't like the movie or you had misgivings about the movie and you're actually kind of scared to say you didn't like the movie. Cause everybody at your eyes, what do you, you didn't like the English, but you know, it's like that joke on Seinfeld where Elaine is the only person who's willing to admit she didn't like the English patient and everyone scoffs at her. What do you make of that? Cause I do think that there is something about this ecosystem that is actually driving the political classes into kind of unbelievable myopia and hurting. Has yeah. It- well, it's definitely hurting. <laughs> it's definitely hurting to some degree. I think it's probably as simple as, the the disinformation beat tech journalists to the extent they are tech journalists were just led by the nose by about 300 disgruntled twitter employees who convinced them that their jobs were so essential that the services they provide were so impossible to duplicate that the whole thing would collapse of its own weight and it's an instant message service this i mean we had those around since 1999 they aren't hard to engineer or maintain and the silicon valley is rather bloated and this just seems to me like influence peddling, perhaps. And the, 
And there's and and Noah's absolutely right because a lot of the the scare and fear mongering about misinformation in particular uh, and going back a ways is you know scholars studying this are starting to pull back like the YouTube algorithms that supposedly radicalize and turn your son into incels all of that is starting to be disproven but I have to say Twitter reminds me I go to this dog park and there's this extremely cute but very bossy um, corgi named Molly and all Molly wants to do is herd the other dogs so when she finds her groove she gets those dogs running around like a whole bunch of sheep and she's extremely happy and but most of the time she'll just get one or two you know other loud weird dogs to like run around and bark with her but like molly is twitter you know if when it when it works in that weird myopic way it gets way too many people riled up over something that isn't real but most of the time it's just a pretty small core of very loud voices well what it what it does to me what it does to me what it does in my estimation is it um it draws the battle lines over issues in very dumb and un, unproductive ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of and, and then and then the actual media pick up on this and it defines fights in ways that are um, completely useless and, and, and in, in ways that make me say, well, I, I all right, I'm out of this one then, too. Right. The yeah. choose your fighter model, yes. uh, choose your fighter yeah. model of political debate. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, b- because it because it it it. You know, you know, the most explosive voices are the ones that that are that get to define the issue. I think it also I'm, I'm now referring professionally to, you know, life in the in the sort of um, influence political influencer business or the political analysis business. I mean, if you're if you are addicted and consumed by something that is actually making you worse at what you do. I don't mean like obviously drugs make you worse at living. But, you know, if you if you're sort of like. If if your primary source of daily interaction uh, on these matters is something that is now I think been clinically proven, let's say, to be a net negative in how you, I think we all have to agree with to to acknowledge that something big happened here that was missed by the political class entirely, and that's that's everybody on on on, on every side. Um, what do you do about that? Well, I mean, there's a demand for this. Markets work. <laughs> if this were to disappear tomorrow, it would be replaced by something very similar to it. Because this is right. what people want. Um, it's done, As we all agree, it's done irreparable reputational harm to the institution of journalism. It sends incredibly distorted signals to politicians and makes them misread their environment. It's been a net negative, but people want it. Right. Okay. Can't so get, let, let can't me... get rid of alcohol. People want it. Okay, let yeah. me conclude on this. I was listening to the 538 podcast, uh, Nate Silver and Galen Druk, and they had a very interesting conversation in which Nate Silver said, Trump is not the front runner for 2024. After, what happened before the midterms no longer counts. We now have three polls or four polls that show DeSantis either in the lead or very or, or them tied. And... um. There's no reason to think that Trump is the front runner. In fact, you could say that uh, that DeSantis is the front runner, and that everybody um, is haunted by the fact that they got Trump wrong in 2015, um, but that this is 2022, 23, and and circumstances are different, and um, the world in which you say I'm going to be cautious because I got him wrong before can lead you to overestimating his chances and his challenges based on what it, what information we have now so i was thinking what the counter example to that would be 
Uh, the counterexample would be, well, look, Rudy Giuliani was leading in polls of Republicans throughout most of 2007. And of course, he like went nowhere once people started to vote. So that would be the, you know, he would be the DeSantis, let's say. And um, but that's that's not a good analogy because Rudy's positions on things, on many things, were contrary to where the party was. He was too socially liberal for the party, for one thing. Um, and and he was running solely as a celebrity, as the hero of 9-11. And it was seven years after 9-11, you know, was, was, was when the election was going to be. And DeSantis is not a colorful personality. He's not like, you know, a dominating figure who was man of the year and all of that. He's made his reputation in the Republican Party as being a better Republican than Trump. If you go by issues and by how he fights the culture war and all of that. So I don't know. What do you think of this idea that, you know, people have to Silver said everybody's cowards like DeSantis is like easily could easily be considered the front runner. And just, people are handling <laughs> Trump as though he's the winner. It's it's not wrong. It's it's an interesting perspective, but it's a bizarre perspective to take from a data guy. There's not enough data to render that conclusion based on his own terms. I, I haven't seen nearly enough. We have like what, you know, a couple of online polls, a state level poll in Florida, a state level poll in, in Texas, one poll of early primary voters. I mean, it is it's far too premature and there's just simply not enough evidence to support that in an empirical way and you can put your finger in the in the air and sort of sense which way the wind is blowing and everybody's doing that but that's exactly what he's criticizing good point um but i do think there's some point at which uh trump has to show uh his power and uh that hasn't happen i mean we'll see like again we what we need is an is an unexpected event and see how the political system reacts and and where where he comes down and if he has a well the the snowstorm in buffalo there we go there's this first test to all of our listeners in upstate new york please i hope you know yeah it's gonna be a lot of snow yeah so far it hasn't manifested in this four foot lake effect event so far the worst has has not occurred right that's right Hopefully That's it stays right. that way. That's right. Well, you know, uh, obviously it's extreme. It's an extreme weather event. So just as everything proves everything when you believe in something, this obviously is the uh, ultimate proof of climate change or global warming, except it's not warming, but it's an extreme event. We have so we never had extreme events before, except when we have extreme events every year and have always had extreme events. Those of us from Florida uh, think a dusting of snow is an extreme event. So, you yeah. know. Also, I was relative. under the impression that because of global warming, like there were not, there wasn't going to be any more snow. That that's there was kind of that right. There's not going to be any more snow. Cause... It goes both ways. They, they they predict it both ways. Yeah, global warming means more extreme winters and more mild winters at the same time. It's amazing how that works. So nothing, nothing can disprove anything. It's kind of like, yeah, okay. Sort of like Nate, what, what, what Noah's saying about Nate Silver. Anything can be true when you don't have enough data. Thank you very much for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday. So for Abe, Noah, and 
Christina. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.